Amen. That is a reminder that we have needed a lot lately. Um, and thank God um, that we have that reminder from the Holy Spirit who is with us always, from these services, from all of you um, as you go about your days and you um, are lights for the Lord in the world. Um, you're that reminder uh, to somebody that needs it. And um, we are... Uh, We've been surrounded by fire and water um, uh, in this season of different different t types that we've ever faced before, um, but uh, we have not lost the reminder, and uh, we are not losing the battle. Um, we have um, uh, our God. He is with us. He is for us, and we're going to make it through. Um, I know that um, it seems as we take a few steps forward, we um, have to step back again. Uh, it, it seems in this uh, in this climate, um, you know, this past week, uh, listening to to the vice president and the governor and uh, all the other people talk. Um, it seems that the suggestion is that there's still a little bit, um, uh, a little bit of time um, ahead of us where uh, the risk and, and so forth is, is still pressing. But uh, we know that um, our God is as present as ever. And uh, by taking precaution and doing what we feel is right and uh, what we know is uh, right, we will be able to get through this. So I appreciate your continued cooperation, uh, your continued um, faithfulness. Um, and for all those that are watching and, and ha aren't able to be with us yet, we, we love you. And uh, we um, are determined uh, to get through this season stronger than ever. Um, and uh, in a landscape of so many opinions and so many different ideas and so many different convictions, um, we come together around God's word. We come together unified in the Holy Spirit around what we do know is true, absolutely true, and will never be tested, never will change. And that is God's love for us, and that is our hope in Him, and that is the salvation that we have in Christ. Uh, so thank y'all for coming and uh, uh, affirming that this morning, doing that in your daily lives, and uh, can thank you for your continued patience, um, and we will uh, we'll be back in full uh, swing before we know it. But until then, um, we're glad to be here in whatever way we can be. So hope you have a Bible. If you do, we're going to look at 1 Kings 12 this morning. We're going to be looking across several chapters in sort of a very quick and very brief summary of one of the most uh, tumultuous times of Israel's history. So if you think these days are rough, just wait until you hear about what Israel went through all these years ago. Now, um, we're going to learn, we're going to hear this story today. It's a story that is long and winding, it's full of twists and turns, full of surprises, betrayals, and drama that you cannot fit into a whole hour, much less 30 minutes. Um, so I encourage you to go home and read um, all the chapters that we're going to be pulling from today. Um, you'll be glad you did, and you'll think, wow, I should read more of this because there's so much here. Um, but the story today that spans several generations and, and, and many different chapters is a story, um, is a tale of two kings. Um, and uh, uh, these two kings that we find in each of these episodes is always pushing and pulling to each other, vying for control and dominance over the other. We're going to learn a lot of history today. And, and even if you don't agree with the message or the resolution that we come from, uh, that we bring from this story, that I bring from this story, um, you at least learn a lot of, of, of facts and history from from God's Word, um, and you're going to walk away with biblical truth that you can take and study and pray for God to show you His will through, and that's really the amazing thing about the Bible, about studying the Bible, about coming to church. It's really a win-win situation. Um, for whatever reason, if you don't uh, agree with what is said about the Bible, the Bible is still true, and it's still um, an opportunity to take and learn from it and, and, and apply from the, apply the truth from it, um, and if for, every, for whatever reason you find yourself disagreeing with me or not meshing, my message not messing meshing with you or, or really landing with you, I, I offer you this encouragement. 
always try the Spirit, always take with an open heart, open mind what God is teaching or what you think God is trying to teach you. But here's something we should never do when we study the Bible. If we're tempted to dismiss the message, at least don't dismiss the text. Listen, I don't get it right all the time. I'm not, as in, I'm not inspired like these guys were, right? I'm not a mouthpiece from God. I'm a messenger from God. But if you're ever tempted, and of course you are, to dismiss the message, right, that's fine. Don't ever dismiss the text. Because the Bible is too good to do that to, right? It's timeless, God's Word. It has transcended culture and kingdoms. It'll outlast every one of us. Um, it'll make a lo- difference longer than any other legacy or movement of our time. So take the text always. Understand that it still has something to say to you, and it's vital that we study and understand it. In a world where there are so many opinions, we have the truth from God. And that is so precious, especially in this day. I'm of the mind that most texts have one primary interpretation, but there's many applications from any chapter of the Bible, but there's always one primary interpretation to take away from any text that you read. And and I think our story today has pretty clearly a single interpretation, but we're going to pull a few applications from it, but there's always more. Um, Now, the art of theory interpretation is not what we're talking about today, but, but this book, this collection of books, as we talked last week, there's one primary purpose for the whole Bible, for all 66 books that, are come, to, that come together as God's Word. The primary purpose of the Bible, as we've learned, is to reveal a loving God and make us His faithful children, right? That God exists without us, without the Bible. God exists whether we know it or not. We are His children or meant to be His children whether we know it or not. The Bible comes to us to bridge those gaps. There's a loving God. He's your Father. He wants you to be His faithful child, You may disagree with me on where we go with this point, but don't ever miss, don't ever miss that reminder. And it could be that the message wasn't all there. It could be that we just weren't willing to always hear, but it will never be that the Bible wasn't able to teach and speak to us. And and I preface this message with that, not because I think today's message is particularly controversial or hard to hear, but because we are going to cover a large swath of Israel's history, and I think there's a lot to learn. And and I hold the sacred opportunity to teach the story today and recount its events, and I hope that you'll take it and study it in far greater detail. And if, if the resolution doesn't sit well with you, or if one in the future doesn't, take these truths today and say, how is God trying to give me grace through this? Because I know He is. Because every truth from God carries grace from God. God's power for us, to us, through us, over our sin, over our shortcomings, to make us more like Him. I believe the goal um, of our talk today is, is one that the enemy will put up a great fight to keep us from receiving because it's so deeply challenging to our hearts and how we conduct our lives and make our decisions. We're going to look at an era of political and civil unrest And it's not our own, it's one of the history of Israel. Several episodes with an overarching era, within this overarching era and story. Each pocket and episode of this story features kings and leaders at war with each other. On each side, we find leaders who have been chosen and appointed by God, not that he willed them to oppose each other, it's just that they weren't willing to budge, even though they both were at times appointed by God. And and, and what strikes me so powerfully about these stories and this might not land with you, but it does me, and this is why I'm talking about this today. If God's chosen leaders were capable of such error, how much more am I? Now, I don't know about y'all, because y'all are a lot better than me, but hey, 
If God's chosen leaders, anointed and, and, and spoken for, you know, in His place to speak, appointed by Him, representing Him, if they were capable of such disaster, how much more? How more likely am I to do even worse? Again, you may not think the thing, but that's how I read the Old Testament. I find myself, and it's usually on a level far below those of the leading characters, but that's just an approach. Today, I'd like our collective approach to be one of humility and eagerness to learn from several generations of God's people. And, and let me tell you about these people. They had the best intentions, but they seldom ended up where they wanted to be. If there's one thing I could summarize the entire Old Testament, the stories of Israel, is that they always had good intentions, but they rarely, if ever, ended up where they wanted to be. And what I'm saying may sound simple, it's almost too simple for us to even take serious, but here's the thing. We often romanticize Israel's history. It's the land of milk and honey. It's the kingdom of God full of signs and wonders. It was all those things, but it was a very, very short period of time. The kingdom that came to be out, out of the diligence of Moses and Joshua and Samuel, we've read about how God used those men to set up the nation and lead the people, yet we've also read about how even under great leadership, the people drifted and how they were always called back together because they always fell apart. Under Samuel, the people complained that if they only had a king, they'd stay grounded and settled. So they asked for a king, and they received a king after their own image. King Saul was a royal disaster. He was a king, all right. He took, he demanded, he abused his power in every way, like kings do. God used this to prove to the nation that they didn't need a king. They had him. But God had used men before, and he would again in his stead, and, but not men who claimed to be all-powerful, all-autonomous. Saul's story, of course, you know, ends with tragedy, but David ascends the throne and learns something along the way in becoming king. David was a king, but he was not the king. God was the king. David was just a king. David was tempted to follow in Saul's stead, of course, uh, being autonomous, but he quickly learned that was not the way to go. He would go on to use his position and his power to preach and model to his people the key, the secret to remaining right where they needed to be, how to always get where they wanted to be. Good intentions weren't enough. They needed a better approach. And come on, it's simple, but the best approach, what is the best approach to get where you want to be? The best way to get to your intended destination is to have the right directions, right? And that's why direction, not intention, determines our destination. Always, right? No matter how much we intend to get to a certain place, if we are headed in the wrong direction, we will not get there. God promised David he would be the first of many in a new dynasty of kings that would rule over Israel as long as they remembered this very important principle, this path principle. David passed this principle down to his son Solomon. Solomon heard his dad say this so much, he wrote it down in his own journal to advise not just his own sons, but all the kings that would follow and all the people that would come to take this advice so seriously. 
Solomon wrote in Proverbs 4, Let your eyes look directly forward. Your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn away from evil. Solomon said what his dad taught him. You are on a pathway. Make sure the direction is where you want to head it. The direction you're headed in is leading you to the destination that you want to arrive at. No matter your intention, your direction will determine your destination. Solomon wrote a whole book about this principle. If you read all the Proverbs, you'll see tons of truths like this. But just a heads up, when you read Proverbs, you'll see a lot of female pronouns about she and her. And and Solomon uses these pronouns to personify wisdom and folly. Wisdom is the idea that there is a direction that we can follow from God. Folly is the idea that we have our own intentions that we can follow. And it's always this back and forth, wisdom versus folly, direction versus intention. Listen to what Solomon says about folly. It may feel right. Oh, sons, listen to me. Be attentive to my words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray to her paths. For many a victim has she laid low. All her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. That way may feel right, but it is not going in the right direction. Because as we've learned, direction, not intention, determines your destination. Now, of course, if there's anybody's life that is a perfect example of modeling this, it has to be King Solomon, right? Right? May we always read the book of Proverbs with a disclaimer at the title, Do as Solomon says, not as Solomon does. Because Solomon didn't follow his own rules, did he? Now, early on he did, but he veered off course later in life. What changed? Not his advice. Not the truth. His attention shifted. His retention of all that he had learned flatlined. He was asleep at the wheel just as the nation had gathered together with with him in seeking the Lord, he departed from God's will and his path. And so did the nation. And here's the thing. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. So I'm not saying anything about you, but I'm thinking about myself, right? I mean, if the wisest guy that ever lived erred in his own advice, I mean, how much more dangerous am I at the wheel of my own life? Things got so bad under Solomon's kingdom, civil war broke out within his kingdom. And while Solomon was able to keep most people in line, the ensuing transition from his son to be king suggested a rocky road ahead. His son Rehoboam was planning for life on Easy Street, but God planted seeds within his kingdom, and rebellion was already brewing. Would God do that, you ask? Would God really cause division within his own kingdom? Well, if the kingdom no longer resembles or reflects his image or design, he absolutely would, and he absolutely did. That's what he did. He sent word to one of Solomon's chief diplomats, a man named Jeroboam, no relation to Rehoboam. Jeroboam would soon find himself in a position of tremendous influence. As it would happen, Jeroboam was made leader of the forced labor, a.k.a. slavery, in his nation. As the forced labor grew greater and greater, their burden became heavier and heavier. Jeroboam knew he could not remain silent any longer. He knew he had to speak up for the people that were being taken advantage of. As Solomon leaned more and more heavily on the people to carry such a great burden under his ruthless demands and seldom benefits their way, the people grew weary. 
Jeroboam became uh, uh, so uh, much of a populist leader, came to the point where he couldn't enforce the inhumane and merciless demands of Solomon. He resigned from his post and he fled to Egypt because Solomon had made him a target. Meanwhile, he became a champion amidst the people and they believed that he would soon one day lead them to a better life. But the prosperity of Solomon was so great in his kingdom that many could not see or feel the burden. But as that prosperity waned and as the gold surplus faded away, more and more felt the pressure and more and more enlisted were enlisted to labor for Judah's benefit. So Solomon died and his son Rehoboam became king. And on day one, Jeroboam returned with a demand to Rehoboam. It's all that behind this that leads us to chapter 12, verse 1. And the story goes that Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. It happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it. He was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of Solomon, had been dwelling in Egypt. They sent him and called him, who's they, the whole nation. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father, his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you, and we'll have a happy, unified kingdom. Many of Solomon's advisors begged Rehoboam to put the people first. They begged him, listen, your father was so ruthless, please lighten the load. But Rehoboam consulted with his advisor's sons and his friends, and across their ivory tower line of sight, they encouraged Rehoboam to keep his head down and let the machine eat, raise taxes, increase the burden, enlarge the government's iron fist. Didn't God have Judah's back after all? And where else were the people going to go? Well, it turns out, Jeroboam, that's where. The story continues, verse number 12, if we'll look down. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king had directed and said, and saying, come back to me on the third day. Then the king answered and the people, he answered them roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. He said to them, according to the advice of the young men, my father made your yoke heavy. I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips. I will chastise you with scourges. So the king did not listen to the people for the turn of events was from the Lord that he might fulfill his word which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Now when all of Israel saw the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king and saying, What share have we with David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house, O David. And that was a call for war. So Israel departed to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah, the one tribe. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of the revenue, but all Israel stoned him with stones, and he died. Therefore Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Now it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him and called him to the congregation and made him king over Israel. There was none who followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel, that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But the word of God comes to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up and fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is for me. So the story goes that there was a divided kingdom, and it would stay that way forever. And there you have it. 
The mighty Israel was divided, and suddenly, Jeroboam's wisdom vaulted him to success at the expense of Rehoboam's folly. Rehoboam didn't intend for this to happen, but it happened because he was headed in its direction. And again, like I said, each episode in this story features two simultaneous kings, and the one that follows is no different. Jeroboam, who was now king of Israel, a nation of ten united tribes, and he couldn't wait to be the king. But y'all remember, Jeroboam was a king, but he was not the king, and he had to learn that the hard way. The story goes that Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also, he went out from there and built Peniel. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to the Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, It is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. Can you believe that? God had literally given him the kingdom, and he immediately started worrying about losing it and protecting it. It wasn't his. It was given to him. As soon as he found out he had a position of power, he forgot the most important thing, that God was the king. And he had to follow God and not his own heart. You know, Power does a funny thing to us. It causes us to forget that we ever needed direction in the first place. It makes us think that our intentions are always perfect. Isn't it true? We get a little bit of power and we think, nobody got me here. I got myself here. I didn't need direction. My intentions are perfect. Power also brings with it a tremendous paradox. With every crown, there's an albatross around our necks, bringing weight of fear that it could be taken away from us at any time. A story, a story is all the time where a blessing from God becomes a burden, causing us to abandon our faith and assume the worst. And maybe this explains why we as Americans are so blessed, but we are so stressed. We're so well off, but we're so worried always. With this misguided move, however, the nation of Israel was going down in flames as quick as it had assembled as they fell into idol worship. Jeroboam's dynasty would be very short-lived. If you'll turn over to chapter 14, we'll hear the prophet of God who comes to him and says to him that his days are numbered. Chapter 14, verse 7, As quickly as he became king, the prophet says, Go and tell Jeroboam, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments, who followed me with all of his heart to do what was in right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who were before you. For you have gone and made yourself other gods, molded images to provoke me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring disaster to the house of Jeroboam. And so the story goes. You can read from this point to the end of chapter 16. Six different kings rotate on and off the throne. There's constant unrest and constant betrayal and constant coups. And then a new dynasty arises. 
The son of Omri, Ahab, builds a new capital city and he takes control with an iron fist and with a new God. And he introduces a new state-sanctioned religion, Baalism, worshiping the God called Baal. If you look over at chapter 16, verse 29, here's how the story comes to a head. Chapter 16, verse 29, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil was in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. It came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, that he took as a wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonites. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he built in Samaria. It goes on to say that he did more evil than any other king. What was first introduced by Jeroboam was now official, and all the prophets had been purged out of the land except one who voluntarily left. But he'd be back. Until then, the nation sank into worship of this Baal, but it wasn't as overt as you may would think. You see, Ahab and his cult of prophets introduced Baal to the land, but they made sure not to outlaw worship of Yahweh. They made sure that Baal took precedent, though. Like Jeroboam had said, Baal was greater than Yahweh. Yahweh answered to Baal, these are the gods that really brought you out of Egypt. So it was very tempting to worship Baal. Whereas Yahweh said no, Baal said yes. Whereas Yahweh called for denial of your flesh, Baal encouraged you to follow your heart. Whereas Yahweh said there's a direction you should follow, Baal said just do what your intentions think is best. And Baal scratched the God box. He checked the God box of human conscience while not convicting it, but confirming it. See, Baal wasn't above human fallacy. He was in tune with it. Because as we know, he was a creation and reflection of it. Now what does that sound like? Hedonism, masquerading as religion, of course. You see, Baal worship was not a, uh, uh, was a celebration of human nature, not about saving it. Now, not all the traditions of old were lost. They were mingled in, assimilated into this new era. And to ease the conscience of many, Baal was often called Yahweh. At first it felt wrong, but after a while, just evoking Yahweh's name made people feel better about blatantly doing the wrong thing. Our religious consciences are easy to please like that, aren't they? But the label that Israel put on this pagan religion could not cover up the differences. You see, whereas Yahweh required sacrifice of flocks and harvest, Baal claimed to require nothing but always eventually took everything. Because here's the thing about worshiping Baal, uh, about following our own natures. Eventually, my nature and your nature are going to butt heads. Eventually, one of us has to be wrong. See, Yahweh comes to us and calls us before Him and to realize that, yes, we may be different, but we have one thing that we're equal in, in our failure, in our sin. So we come before Him in agreement that we need a Savior bringing from our abundance, which varies, of course, but confessing that we have a need of Him. But see, Baal pits us against each other. Bell leads us to be competitive and combative. Bell stirs and triggers society on the basis of all that divides us. Baal calls for us to sacrifice our enemies so that we can build a greater foundation on the ash heap. He'll eventually call us to sacrifice our families because in order to get higher and more fame, we cannot spare any expense. And we don't do it maliciously, we do it desperately. 
having no choice in order to get what we want and what we need. If it means forsaking commitment to those we love, then so be it, because the entire goal is prosperity and success and power and freedom. And in case you're wondering, Baal is not dead. He's alive and in our world today. He is worshipped more than any other god. He is sang to, he is prayed to, he is paid, he is sacrificed to, he is desperately sought after in our world today. But we've renamed him, don't worry. See, in America, we sometimes call him, let's back up, in America, we sometimes call him Jesus or declare that Jesus is on his side whether it be right or left. At first, it feels wrong, but many are used to it by now. But brothers and sisters, Jesus, Yahweh's Son, Yahweh in flesh and blood, would never lead us to do the things that we've done and continue to do. Just like Yahweh didn't lead Solomon to forsake his father's legacy and ignore God's truth, just like Yahweh didn't lead Rehoboam to make the weight so heavy on the backs of the people that it would break them, just like Yahweh didn't lead Jeroboam to feed his insecurity and fear by deceiving people for his own gain and their expense, just like Yahweh didn't lead Ahab to sacrifice children and take from peasants in order to make himself number one. Yahweh, Jesus would never lead us to choose what feels right over what is right. He would never lead us to prioritize personal choice over providential creation. He would never lead us to claim superiority based on anything or ignore that whom much is given, much is required, or that those are beneath us are somehow behind us or below us. Jesus would never lead us to choose feelings over facts, fear over faith, independence over dependence, greed over generosity, consumption over compassion, culture over church, country over kingdom. Jesus would never cause us to make those exchanges. But our American religion justifies those things, doesn't it? And if we peel off the label of Jesus we've stuck on so many things, we see that Baal is behind it, isn't he? Now, some of those ideas that we've renamed Jesus, they've led us down paths, haven't they? To the left, to the right, to the far left, to the far right. And within them is this spirit of Baal, and his fingerprints are everywhere. Now, lest anyone miss out on what I am saying, Baal is present in every religious denomination, every economic platform, every political party. Baal is wherever he can pepper a little religion on top of a stronghold of humanity. Church, I believe that our generation is not much different than what we've studied today. I believe there is a reckoning coming over our land. The path we are on is not sustainable. We must consider our intentions, yes, but we must take God's direction on this. I believe that the church has and must make a choice in this time. We cannot turn left. We cannot turn right. We must follow a path that is straight ahead, being illuminated from above. Joshua gave a charge a few weeks ago. Choose this day whom you will serve. It may aggravate us, but it will liberate us. Israel, all those years later, could not make a choice. They wanted to hobby between two. And after three years of tyranny under Ahab, God brought one of the prophets, the last of his kind, to the land and Elijah says to Ahab in chapter 18, verse 21, 
to all the people that were with him, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. The people could not answer because we don't want to make a choice, do we? But Jesus clearly said, no one can serve two masters. That includes me. Whatever my passion is, my politics, my philosophy as a human, I may have one or many But all of them, the spirit of Baal rules and reigns and we have to choose between them and Jesus. Isn't that what Elijah said? If the Lord is God, follow Him and Him alone. Oh, it won't dethrone or disarm these other kings, but it will put them in their right place. We will know what is right and what is wrong because we will be bowing before the the real and only throne. Elijah, at the end of this story, gathers the nation to Mount Carmel. He says, come to me and let's rebuild the altar to the one and only God. It's time that we come near and seek the Lord as our one and only King. So when the world says, whose side are you on? We can boldly say, we are on the Lord's side. The story ends with an abundance of rain coming on a dry and parched land because Elijah prayed for God to show the land who he was. Christians, we need to be praying now more than ever that God might show the world who he is through us. That can only happen if we say, if we answer Elijah's question Which side are you on? God will only show the world who He really and truly is when Christians are really and truly and holy and only His. This is what can bring the supernatural power and presence of God on our land. This is what can unleash the goodness of God on our world when Christians are really and truly and holy and only Loyal to their king, to their God. Oh, what a difference we might could make if we were on the Lord's side. We're going to sing, we're going to have a song that tells us how good God is. That tells us how good God is to us, how much He loves us and who you are in His family. Hear these words and hear this song and know There's no better side to be on. There's no other option for us to choose. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you are good and you alone are king. Thank you for rescuing me from another king, from another throne, from another altar. Lord, forgive me for renaming my own convictions with your word and with your labels. When what they really and truly are is this age-old worship of a pagan God. God, I love you. You're so good. And may this song encourage your people and remind your people why they have chosen your side and affirm that choice today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear this song this morning.